If you remember last week, we began um, a series going through the book of Acts. And, and so we are in Acts chapter 2 this week. And so last week we talked about how, how Jesus had been raised from the dead. He appears to the disciples. And, and the fact that Jesus is alive changes everything. We don't worship someone that, that died and remained dead but rose again. And so he tells them about all that's happening, talks to them about the kingdom of God, and tells them what he wants them to do, to be his witnesses throughout the world. And so we have that same challenge, to be his witnesses, and, and they are gathering together in prayers where we leave them, praying, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come, and they're praying together. And in that time, the one thing we're, we're skipping from Acts chapter 1 is that they replaced Judas with Matthias. And so they replaced Judas with Matthias. One of, so now there are 12 again. He is one that had been with them. He was faithful. And so Matthias has chosen to place Judas. And so we're picking up in Acts chapter 2 in verse 1. And this is the day that we call Pentecost often. And the idea of Pentecost is this idea of 50. That's what the word literally means in Greek, 50. And so what does it mean? Why is it 50? 50 days from the Passover is the day of Pentecost, and that is the day that the Holy Spirit comes to the believers. So we're going to read that in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. <coughs> Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house they were, where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't, these all, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each one of us can hear them in our own native language. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, were able, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for this time that we can come together, that we can look at your word, that we can read about what has happened in the early church, and we can reflect on it and what it means for our life and how we can be obedient to you. God, as we, as we look at the Holy Spirit and what it means for our life, what it means to follow you, to, to be empowered by him, to live our life, to follow you, God, I pray that you would move within us, that we would, be, we would be filled with your Spirit, and we would be people who there's an observable difference in, that the Spirit of God lives strongly within and is evident in our lives. God, I pray that you will be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the title of this sermon, usually I, I start with that, but the title of this sermon is Forgotten God. And this title comes from a book that, that I read at one point, and, and I want to first look at this idea because the first thing we need to do is to know the Holy Spirit. Knowing the Holy Spirit is important. And the idea of forgotten God comes from a book by Francis Chan, and this is what he, he kind of says in the introduction of the book. From my perspective, 
The Holy Spirit is tragically neglected and for all practical purposes forgotten. While no evangelical would deny his existence, I am willing to bet there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say they have experienced his presence or action in their lives over the past year. And many of them do not believe that they can. This is why I think it's important that we know the Holy Spirit. Knowing the Holy Spirit is so important. And that seems like a a big statement to make, that evangelicals, what we would be included under this umbrella, that don't recognize and have forgotten the Holy Spirit. And, and I know that's not true in every person's life. But there is a study, and I've referenced this study before in different parts of it, but Lifeway Research in 2020 did a state of theology study sponsored by Ligonier Ministries. They surveyed 3,000 Americans and asked them a number of questions. Only one in five of those surveys would be considered an evangelical in belief. And in, in the United States, one in four would self-identify as an evangelical. But by this study, they, to be classified as an evangelical, they had to strongly agree with the following statements. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. It is important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of sin. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. And so for someone in this study to be classified as an evangelical, they have to agree with these things. The authority of the Bible, the need to evangelize, to share one's faith with others, tell them about Jesus, to believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the only way that they can be forgiven for sin, and that the only way that someone will have eternal life is through what Jesus has done. Now, if you're sitting here, hopefully that sounds like, well, yeah, that's what we believe. That is what is clear in the Bible. That's what we would hold to. And that would make, by the purpose of this study, you an evangelical. Now, among evangelicals in this study, so remove everyone that didn't agree with those. Among the people who agreed with those four things are some very concerning beliefs about God in evangelicals. So 96 would say they believe in the classic doctrine of the Trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the Trinity can be very confusing at times because we believe there is one God expressed in three persons who are not the same, but are equally God, yet distinct. And there are some graphics that you can find that try to illustrate this where God is in the center, Father, Son, Holy Spirit on the side. The Father is not the Son, both are God. The Father is not the Spirit, but both are God. So 96% would say they believe believe that. Yet 65% Say, the, this is, say Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, I want to be charitable. I think they misunderstood this. But this is saying that 65% of, of evangelical Christians believe that Jesus is created by God. That doesn't make Jesus God. That means that he has, he has been created. He is a created being and is not eternal with God. It is not eternal as God. 30% say Jesus was a great teacher but was not God. That's why I think maybe they were tricked a little bit by the wording. But 30% outright say that Jesus is not God. 46% say that the Holy Spirit is a force rather than a person. So nearly half of evangelicals, that's a pretty clear distinction right there. 40%, 46% of evangelicals say that the Holy Spirit is a force rather than a person. 
They do not believe that the Holy Spirit is God. And so that is why I would agree with the statement that in general, the Holy Spirit is a forgotten God. That we don't recognize Him as a person, we don't recognize Him as the Holy Spirit of God, as a distinct member of the Trinity. 18% believe that the Holy Spirit can tell them to do something that is forbidden by the Bible. These are very concerning statistics. That people who, now, it's a small sample size. Hopefully this is a, they just got all the worst, most unbiblical believers. But I'll tell you that there are many people that would claim to follow God that have some very strange beliefs. Now, we are not a creedal church. We don't hold creeds. We don't recite creeds. But this is the reason that in the early church, creeds existed. Not everyone was literate. Not everyone could have a Bible. And so, like in 325, there's the Nicene Creed. And it says things to combat heresy. We believe in the Father. We believe in the Son who is begotten, not created. The Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Why are these things there? Because there were people going around saying, I think Jesus was created by the Father. There were people that would go around and say, well, I think Jesus is just the Father in another form. These are heresies. Not true. The, the Holy Spirit is a distinct member of the Trinity and is God. It's important that we know the Holy Spirit. That we know about the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be a theological expert. You don't have to have every thought and argument figured out and parsed out, but understanding very clearly that the Scripture says that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit was promised by Jesus. Jesus, walking with the disciples, is saying to them, listen, it is good that I go away. It's John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor, this is talking about the Holy Spirit, the Greek word is paraclete, will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. So here we see Jesus, who the Bible very clearly in the book of John, the word was in the beginning with God. The word was God. All things were created for him. Not, not anything that was created, it was made without him. Jesus is God. And he's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to go away and I'm going to send the counselor to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Not referring to the Holy Spirit as a force, not re referring to the Holy Spirit as some abstract thing, but a person of the Trinity of God. And that word paraclete that I, that I referenced, I've, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I like to remember that because if you were to play baseball without a pair of cleats, you have no traction. There's no, you're, you're falling everywhere. If you've ever tried to do it, it's terrible. And so just like a pair of cleats will help you to maintain traction in, 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 a, in baseball or in any sport that you need it, the paraclete is the helper that comes alongside you and helps you to live the life that God calls you to. We also see that not only is he God, not only is he promised by Jesus, but he lives within believers. This is why Jesus says it's better that, he, that I go away so that he will come to you. Understand this, the disciples, if you ever read through the New Testament, you're going to see Jesus constantly talk to the disciples and be like, why are you so dumb? Why don't you get these things? He'll, he'll say a parable in front of all these people, and they all go away scratching their heads, and the disciples are like, yeah, yeah. And then they all leave and they say, hey, Jesus, what did you mean by that? We're just as confused as the rest of them. So do you know what Jesus had to do? He had to explain to them what he meant. Why? The disciples did not have the Holy Spirit when Jesus was with them. That is why Jesus says to them, it is better for you if I leave, so the Holy Spirit will come to you. They believed in Jesus. 
God had revealed certain things to them by the Spirit, but they were not filled and indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. But He promises to them, I'm going to send them to you. When I go away, I'm going to send them to you. That's what we looked at last week. Go and wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit that I've promised comes to you. So they go and they pray and they know what they're supposed to do. They know Jesus is alive and they know they're going to be given the Holy Spirit. But it lives within believers. Ephesians 1, 13-14 says this, In Him, in Jesus, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you believed the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. So what is this saying? Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you might be forgiven. He paid the price that you could not pay. The debt that you owed was paid, canceled by the blood of Christ, if you will believe. And how do we know this? We know that we've obtained this because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So not only did God the Father send God the Son to die the, the death that we deserved, we have been sealed by God, the Holy Spirit, to live through this life until we obtain the inheritance. inheritance. One day we'll live an eternal life with God. We will be filled. There will be no more death, no more crying, no more pain. All the former things have passed away. We are with God forever. The best life you can imagine, the, the closest you've ever felt to God, pales in comparison to what awaits us in eternity. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment of what awaits us to come. The Holy Spirit is the way that we have union and communion with God now while we await what is to come in eternity. So we need to know who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is vitally important. If you look through Scripture and you start trying to pay attention to when it talks about the Holy Spirit of God, it's constantly present, especially when it's talking about the life of the believer living, following Jesus. The Holy Spirit is constantly present about how we are supposed to live. But if we want to know the Holy Spirit, if we want to live with Him in our life, we have to then understand the Holy Spirit. We have to have an understanding of the Holy Spirit. Because as we look at this passage, we look through different passages in the, in, in the Bible, we see some things that don't always reflect what we see today, and we see some things today that don't always reflect what we see in Scripture. So we need to have an understanding of what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit living within us and what that looks like as we live in the world around us. And so we do see in the Bible supernatural gifts accompanying the presence of the Holy Spirit. Right? In this passage, we see that they're all together and tongues like fire appear on them and they are filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Understand, this idea of tongues is talking about languages. How do we know that? Immediately they go, and what happens? People from all over are gathered in Jerusalem. They speak all sorts of different languages. And they all hear them in their native language. You got one guy from here. You got, so it lists all these people. You got Parthians, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Asia, Cappadocia, and they're all hearing them in their native language. And they recognize and say, these are Galileans. Why am I hearing them proclaim mighty things about God in my own language? Why? Did Peter, James, and John go learn these languages in the time they've been waiting for the Holy Spirit? No, the Holy Spirit supernaturally gave them the ability to speak and be heard by people in other languages. It's a miracle. The miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. These were real languages. And, and so one of the questions 
when I really started taking my faith seriously, looking at the Bible, reading through the Bible, I was like, well, why don't we see these things happening today in this way? And, and if you have any interaction with the world, you may notice there are some believers who do practice the gift of speaking in tongues, but it doesn't look like this. And so I asked this question, and, and it really was, I didn't get a good answer. I want to spend some time and look at this, because it's the Bible. We, the Bible is our authority, and we want to look at it, and so we're going to talk a little bit about this. Uh, so generally today, when you hear people refer to speaking in tongues, it, it, it is a language that is unbeknownst to the speaker, and generally they are spoken among large groups of people with no intention for translation. And oftentimes these are not discernible languages. It's not as though it were recording and someone looks back and says, hey, yeah, they're speaking Chinese right now. Oh, they're speaking uh, Spanish right now. It's, it's not discernible. It is an angelic language if, if, is what they would refer to it as. And this seems to be, uh, to, to be reminiscent a little bit of what is happening in the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul lays out a framework of orderly worship in the roles that tongues might play in worship. And you can go read that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you'd like to, to, to get a, a full picture of it. But I'm going to, to kind of paraphrase it and explain it now. So tongues are acknowledged as a gift. Paul talks about how he has spoken in tongues. But it is a conversation between God and the speaker. This is something where God is speaking to the person um, because no one else understands him. Prophecy, the proclamation of the truth of God in the known language of the speaker and the people, is referred to multiple times as the greater gift. Seek prophecy, not tongues. Don't seek to speak in tongues. Speak to, seek to prophesy. Why? Because tongues build up the speaker only while prophecy builds up the church. And tongues without an interpreter is likened to an instrument that is, that is made without distinction or notes. Have you ever had that moment where you had a child come up and they grab their guitar, and Eliza's done this a couple times, starts just kind of strumming on it, banging on it, and they're like, did you like my song? And you're like, yeah. Did you, did you know what it was? Um, tell me. Tell me what it was. It was Jesus Loves Me. Oh, yeah, that was really good. You didn't know that. Why? There was no discernible notes, there was no pattern, there was no order to what was being played. But when someone picks up a guitar and has skill with it, and they are able to play some notes, you're going to be able to pick up very quickly what that song they're playing is. You're going to know what's happening. And so the, the gift of tongues as it was being practiced here, and as I think we see it practiced sometimes incorrectly in churches, is that it was chaotic, it was not discernible, it was not for building up the church. And so he's really rebuking the church about this. He says that all languages have meaning, but it's only beneficial when the hearer can be understood by the speaker. And speaking in tongues should always come with an interpretation of what is being said to benefit the congregation. Wouldn't it be fantastic if at one point a person was able to speak in a language they didn't know, someone else is able to translate it? That is a, a sign of God's gift. But so, for example, if I were to say to you today, Erpitase y crea que Jesús es el hijo de Dios, el murió por ti y está vivo. Now I had to read that because I don't know it. Maybe you recognize that this sounds like Spanish. I heard a couple words maybe I've heard before. But does that benefit you? I tell you, what I said there was very powerful. It's true. But it's not meaningful to most people here because they don't speak Spanish. Now what I did say to you is is repent and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He died for you and is alive. 
That's very valuable. But how much more valuable that I say it in a language that you understand and hear? He says in this passage that five words is better than 10,000. Five intelligible words is better than 10,000 in a tongue. Tongues have a purpose to testify to those of another language. That is how the people that are in Jerusalem know that something is happening because they hear someone speaking in their language that does not speak their language. If you were to go on a mission trip to a, a land that did not speak your language and, and start proclaiming the truth of God in their language, they're going to listen. It's miraculous. And this is what we see happen in Acts chapter 2. But tongues, if it is happening, has to be edifying. And so the reality is, there are people that would hold that, that all gifts of the Spirit have kind of ceased. They're cessationists. They, they believe that all gifts of the Spirit, all these miraculous things, went away with the time of the apostles. It was something that was a sign for the people through the apostles, through the people that were in proximity to the apostles, and it has died completely out. Now, I will tell you, I am not a person that holds to that. I believe that God can do anything that God wants to do. That the, the same Spirit that was alive then is the same Spirit that's alive today, but I do know that we have to look at what the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is going to do. And the most primary thing we see the Spirit talked about and concerns with is the sanctifying work of life transformation. Because we have believed in the work of Christ, and the main thing that Scripture talks about the Spirit doing outside of the book of Acts, outside of addressing some of these things, is that the Spirit will help us to stop looking like what we used to look like and to start looking like Christ. This is the main focus of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, that, they will, that we will be righteous, that we will have the ability to live and do what God has called us to do. You know how we know this? David slayed Goliath, right? Do you know what he got a few chapters before? Do you know what he was filled with? The Holy Spirit. And so his life is touched by God. He begins to live and do things that honor God through that. And this is what we see Galatians 5, 19-22 talk about. How it contrasts the work of the flesh and the life in the Spirit. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I've warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How do we do this? Just try harder? No, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And so what are we seeing here? And the gentleness and self-control, that must have been in the next verse for some reason. What do we see here? In the flesh, people are going to do fleshly sinful things. That is why Christ came. That is why Christ died, so that we might be forgiven for these things. Because the people who do those things are guilty. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And so we repent and we believe because we know we are guilty of these things. But if you have been saved, you will be sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And now the fruit of the Spirit is these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the idea is not, here's a list of things not to do. Try hard not to do them. It's not that. What Scripture says is, you have been saved from these things. You've been filled with the Spirit. And now these are the things that if the Spirit lives in you, should be what comes out. 
If you're seeking to follow God, if you're seeking to live in tune with the Spirit, if you're listening to how He guides you, you're, you're allowing Him to, to convict you, to tr- transform your mind, to change you, these things will be what proceeds from you, not the things that formerly did. So the primary thing that we should be concerned with as believers is not, is God going to fill us with the Spirit and have miraculous things happen? Because who gets the glory in that, usually? Well, look what I did. Look what these things I did. No. It's life transformation. I used to be, it's the testimonies that we hear of the alcoholic who has been freed from that in Christ, of the person who struggled with addiction that's been freed from that in Christ, the person who is hateful and angry and gossiped that has been freed from that in Christ. One of my favorite uh, passages of this, it talks about how let, let the thief no longer steal, but work so that he can give generously. It's a thief who gives not because they stole. It's not the Robin Hood story. They work honestly, and then they give when formerly they took dishonestly. It's transformation of who you were into who God is calling you to be. That is the work of the Spirit, and it should be evident in the life of every believer. We also see that there's an ability to be an effective witness for Christ. You know who God chose to be his mouthpiece to the people of Israel? when he freed them from Egypt? Moses, who had a speeching impediment and did not like talking in front of people. Before God called me to ministry, I was terrified at every family gathering that I was going to be called on to pray. It is only by God's grace and his working of his spirit within me that I believe at all that I can stand before you and preach. And so there's times where you hear sermons like last week where it is your responsibility, if you are a believer, to proclaim and to be a witness of what God has done in your life and what he can do for others. And there's a lot of people like, well, that, that, that sounds really good, but I just don't think that's for me. I don't like, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous to talk to people. I'm nervous to talk about it. That's normal. The Holy Spirit who, is who empowers you to do what he calls you to do. One of the things you're going to see through the book of Acts, what the, what the disciples did They gathered together and they prayed for boldness. And they were filled with the Spirit and able to proclaim Christ boldly. So the Holy Spirit, part of it is the ability to speak boldly and to be a witness for Christ. And so how do we discern the Spirit of God in our lives? How do we discern if something is of the Spirit? Because 18% of evangelicals said that the Holy Spirit might tell them to do something that the the Bible forbids. Well, the Holy Spirit is going to lead toward order and not toward chaos. If you look around, we live in a pretty chaotic world. There's all these terrible things. Every day there's a new terrible thing that's happened, a new tragedy, a new chaotic thing. And what God is doing through the work of Jesus and what he ultimately is going to accomplish is the restoration, the redemption of all creation along with those that he has saved through Jesus Christ. And so if the Holy Spirit is leading within your life, it's going to be toward chaos, toward, toward order and not toward chaos. Away from chaos, toward order. And so that is why we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if people are all speaking in all manner of tongues and there's no interpretation, that's chaotic. The Spirit is leading toward order, to the edification, to the building up of people. It's going to lead toward understanding, not toward confusion. Have you ever heard somebody that talks And it sounds like they're saying something very profound. And then you get through what they've said, and you're like, did they say anything at all? And and you learn to do this sometimes in college. 
You, you, you try to put as many big words in your essay to make it sound like you know what you're talking about. But really what that can do is really reveal that you don't know what you're talking about because you've used all these words that don't really mean anything. The Spirit of God is not meant to, to lead you into speaking these profound things, to praying eloquent prayers. It's about edifying and building up believers. Because the reality is, is if you go to someone who's a child and you start speaking to them in, in all of these abstract concepts and ideas, what benefit is that to them? If you go to someone who's a child in Christ and do the same, what benefit? It's like you're speaking another language toward understanding, not confusion. It's going to lead toward righteousness, not debauchery. The life in the Spirit is one that is filled with the fruit of the Spirit, not the works of the flesh. The Holy Spirit is not going to contradict Himself. If you feel like, you know, you hear something, it's like, God told me this. And you can look and find a verse that, that says something different than that. God's not contradicting Himself. He's not like man. He does not change. And the ultimate pursuit of the Holy Spirit is to glorify God not man. 1 Corinthians 2, 3-5, through 5, this is where Paul talks to them. He says, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with, per, were with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. The reality is there's going to be people throughout life that will try to have eloquent words and, and, and wise sayings and things that seek to, to confound and, and be profound. But how we know things are from God is, is that they glorify God. They are not in objection to what He has said. And it is through a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So this comes, finally, that we, we know the Holy Spirit, who He is. We should understand who the Holy Spirit is and how to know what is of Him and, and what is not of Him. And we should know how to live by the Holy Spirit. Living by the Holy Spirit is ultimately what the Holy Spirit is for in a believer's life. It is so that we can live and do what God has called us to do. One of the greatest mistakes that churches can make and many churches have made is that they seek to do things through human understanding and through human cunningness. We should seek to be motivated and live by the Spirit. This is going to lead to holy living. This is a powerful thing that God can do amazing things from, through us. Think about this. Romans 8.11 says this, and if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He, has, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. I want you to think about that. The Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and has the power to raise you to give life through the Spirit who lives in you. This is a powerful proposition. We're not going to be perfect. I'm not saying to you that you're going to be able to live and not sin, but the, but the Bible says that if we live by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so if we are seeking Him, we will be able to make better choices than if we make them on our own. We're going to be able to look more righteous, to live more righteously, to be noticeably different than we were because of the Spirit's power within us. Now, there are going to be times where we don't listen because we are stubborn and we are foolish. But we should constantly seek to listen to the Holy Spirit and His influence in our life.
And when we don't, it's what, what is called grieving the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, And don't grieve the whole, God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. The idea of grieving is causing to feel sorrow, pain, and happiness or distress. And so, while we're called to live a life of righteousness, the, the opposite of that is when we grieve the Holy Spirit. We've been filled with the Spirit to live righteously, but at times, we don't obey where God is leading through the Spirit. And when we do that, we grieve the Holy Spirit. You think about when someone lets you down. It's not as though they are not in your life anymore, or it's not as though they, are, they don't exist anymore, but it grieves you. There's a pain, there's a sorrow because of what they've done. And so we should seek not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but to be led by Him and to live a life that is honoring to God. And this should lead to witnessing. This is not the theoretical we're talking about. This is the reality that if the Holy Spirit lives within you, you've been saved and you've been filled with the Spirit, it should lead to you witnessing, to sharing the things that God has done in your life. What is the first thing the disciples do when they're filled with the Holy Spirit? They go tell people about Jesus. They go tell people that, that Jesus is alive, that the one they crucified is the Messiah, and they killed him. And so in our life, we weren't there for that. We, we, we don't have the eyewitness, but we can say, I have become convinced that Jesus is alive. I have seen his work in my life in this way. Let me tell you about what he can do for you and for anyone who believes. You witness and you share the good news about Jesus, not with powerful words, not with quoting every Bible verse that exists, not with all intelligence, but as Paul did, with fear and trembling, in the Spirit's leading and the power of the Spirit. Because the reality is, is that when we follow the Spirit's leading in our life, it may not look like what we think it should look like. It may not look like what other people, it's what has happened before, but the results of a Spirit-filled life will always be the same. God will be glorified and people will be saved. So we're going to kind of skip or summarize a lot of Acts chapter 2 here. They're preaching and, and people suppose that they're drunk. He said, hey, we're not drunk. It's really early in the morning. Let me tell you why, why, we're, what was, why we're so excited what all's going on. And so Peter preaches a sermon at Pentecost, and, and he tells them all of these things that God has done through history, all these things that God has done through the life of Israel, and what God has done in Jesus. And he closes by saying this, Acts, 36, Acts 2, 36-40, Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified strongly, urged, urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. And so after he preaches, filled with the Spirit, we see what? We see conviction among the people. We see the proclamation of truth. There was no building up of Peter here, but the proclamation that Jesus has made God has made Jesus Lord and Messiah. 
And it says when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Now, what I think this shows very clearly is that they believed this message. If they didn't believe Peter, why does it matter? Why would they be convicted? Why would they have a piercing to the heart if they, didn't, they were not believing what Peter had said? And so that Peter proclaims the truth of the gospel, and they're convicted. When we list off that thing, the, the, all those things that we're not supposed to do, all of these impurities and ways that we live, all of us at some point should be convicted because we realize that we've broken God's laws. We realize that, as the hymn says, it was my sin that held him there. Jesus went to the cross because of what I've done. And quite literally, they were the ones who crucified him. And he's Lord and Messiah. It's this realization that, that we have rejected the one who has made us. We've rejected the one who's loved us. But even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That he made a way of salvation for those who were far off. And it should convict us to our hearts. My prayer is that if you don't know Jesus this morning, that, that he has pierced through your heart, that you've been convicted, that you are a sinner, that you are a person just like every person here who has broken God's laws. That you're guilty before him. And that Jesus came so that you might have life. And it was your sin that was the reason he went to the cross. But that he's alive. And if you will believe in him, you can have eternal life. And if you have that conviction today, my answer is the same. Repent, believe in Jesus, follow in obedience and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the sign of your salvation. And so what I would challenge you today is that if you have been saved, if you have hoped in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God living within you. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Does your life look like it? Now, I'm not asking, have you spoken in tongues? Can you just point to any miracles you've performed? I'm saying, does your life look like the Spirit of God dwells within you? The things that Christ died for becoming less apparent in your life. The holiness and righteousness of God becoming more apparent. The fruit of the Spirit being more evident. One, one quick word on that. It's not like, oh, I'm really good at the kindness, but I'm not really good at the patience. It's all of them. It is the fruit. It is what is produced. If you have been saved this morning, does your life look like it? Is there evidence of the Spirit's work within your life? If you have not trusted Christ today, I would challenge you to repent and believe in Him. So my prayer for our response today is that we will recognize the Spirit accurately. We will seek to know who He is. We're going to understand what He's done. That we will be filled with the Holy Spirit. That we will live by the Spirit. Our lives will reflect it. We'll be bold in our witness. That we'll respond. That we will know where the Spirit's leading us. And we will act like He exists. We will act like people who have been dwell indwelled with the Spirit of God. And we will do what he calls us to do. During this, this time, the altar will be open. I'll be down front if you have any need for prayer. I would love to talk to you. Pray where you're at. Respond how God is leading you. Allow the Spirit to lead you in your life. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, this time that we can come together and look at what you've called us to do. We can look at what it means to, to understand and to know the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that we would be people who live filled with the Holy Spirit, that our life would be evidently changed by the impact of the Spirit in our lives. That we would be Spirit-filled people. God, I pray that if anyone does not know you today, that, Lord, you would convict them with your Spirit, that they would understand their sin, they would know their need of salvation, and they would cry out to you today. And that they would be saved and be filled with the Holy Spirit as well. I pray that you will be with us this morning. That you would move among us. That your Spirit would would fill our lives and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this sermon has been a blessing to you today. If you have any questions about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you through our church Facebook page, email, or by calling the church office.